This week on the Back Table Podcast. There has to be a degree of understanding that there is so much happening with any given Black person at any given time, but not only that, our consumption of what we are faced with within our community and how much we see it, how much it affects all of us as a community when we see it, and the ways in which our bodies are responding to that, the ways in which we sometimes are responding to life circumstances that we are faced with that we may not even be aware of. And it informs our attitudes, our response mechanisms. And so, you know, this whole idea that Black people show up sometimes and they're defensive or angry or difficult, if that is true, or if someone is sensing that, they need to know that there's good reason for it. My name is Vishal Kumar. I am a father, husband, physician, and educator. I identify as an Asian Indian American immigrant. I also identify as a cisgender heterosexual male. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I have the incredible honor, privilege, and opportunity to be a part of the Interventional Radiology family as an associate professor in the Department of Radiology at the University of California, San Francisco. While the views expressed during these conversations are mine and mine alone, I take comfort in knowing I am employed by an institution and community that supports and is committed to transformative justice and addressing health inequities. I also want to thank Aaron Fritz, and the Backtable podcast team for allowing us to use this platform to talk about health equity. If you think like me, and I know that I do, I believe interventional radiology is the most incredible specialty in medicine today. I often tell my friends I feel like I am part of the greatest startup within medicine. As interventionalists, we get to harness the technological advancement and breakthroughs, Nobel Prize winning work of medical imaging. As a medical student whom I recently interviewed with once put it, interventional radiology is like something out of the magical school bus. But I fully acknowledge that these magical image-guided therapies are not available everywhere. There are huge, canyonesque gaps in care for patients in this country and in our states and cities. We have imaging deserts and image-guided therapy deserts, which go hand-in-hand hand with food deserts. In our previous conversation with Dr. Ayana Bennett, we talked about the social determinants of health, and we explored the ways in which racism operates at three distinct levels, the individual, the interpersonal, and systemic. Medicine, to me, seems to be the perfect storms of these forms of racism, and it is our black, and brown and undocumented and unhoused and LGBTQ patients who suffer. Dr. Bennett created a health equity fellowship program for healthcare providers and staff at San Francisco General Hospital. Part of that fellowship included learning about the history of this country, something that I think as an immigrant can be easy to feel isn't our responsibility, isn't our fault, or something that we do not need to focus on. But with the help of today's guest, I started to better understand that what happened over 400 years ago in the United States and what has been happening for centuries worldwide and what it took 
for a human society to justify the cruelty and the inhumane construct of chattel slavery still echoes today. With the help of our next guest, I began to see the connections and better understand how our history's laws, Supreme Court decisions, and cultural values have shaped the landscape today. I started to understand that in order to treat it, we have to name it. I started to understand that the origins of health inequities are rooted in racism. To be more specific, that racism is anti-blackness. And as someone who gets the honor and privilege of doing interventional radiology day in and day out, as someone who is seeing patients in their most vulnerable and exposed states, I have to ask myself, not if I am complicit in racism, but how am I complicit? I want to welcome today's guest, Dante King. You can follow him at Dante King Official on Facebook and Twitter and Dante D. King Official on Instagram. He is an author, leader, educator, patient advocate, and I'm honored to call him a friend. Dante, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Fashaw. It's great to be here. Before we jump into today's topic, I also want to thank you for being willing to engage with me in this conversation and help you celebrate and congratulate you on your recently published book. The title of the book is The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide, and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. What would you like to share with our listeners about your book, Dante? Well, first I would say that the reason for writing the book was a reflection or that I have been in this space, as you mentioned, educating people around the topics, the complex topics of white supremacy and anti-Blackness and examining how through legality, through politics, through America's institutions, the idea of Black inferiority and what I would frame as a contempt for Black people, anyone perceived and or interpreted as Black, how those feelings, those ideas have been infused into institutional practices, into all of legality and policymaking. And I strongly believe that it is the reason why things are the way that they are today. It's led me to the point of concluding that Black people have been forced, if you will, into a situation of ongoing, rampant subjugation as a collective group, and it's inescapable. And so I wanted to make sure that I left the book behind, in a sense, because I began feeling that I wouldn't make it to 50, just based on what I now understand as a disease, if you will, and just living as a Black, queer person, gay, in a society that marginalizes me on all fronts. So I was compelled to write the book. Well, thank you for sharing your identities. I think you speak on many issues, including Intersectionality by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. You speak of the 
internalized individual racism and day-to-day traumas. I think you called it murders in the moment in our classroom. That's right. And I know that engaging in this work is traumatic. It is reliving your own lived experience, your own marginalization, your own traumas. And I acknowledge that, and I, and I thank you for being here. Most definitely, and thank you. Your work focuses on disrupting racism and racial bias, increasing awareness of perpetual systematic racial inequities towards race, sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. Your unique process of teaching consists of analyzing historical context to establish a baseline understanding of racial situations to better understand current inequities and disproportionate outcomes. There's a strong emphasis on the psychology and sociology of whiteness, or what it means to be white. You teach about the history and origins of what it means to be defined as not white or black. You ask your students to embrace and understand the construct of white supremacy and how it functions to perpetuate anti-blackness. To quote Toni Morrison, you introduce us to the profound neuroses of whiteness. Now, Dante, before we go into some specific examples of anti-blackness operating in medicine and interventional radiology today, what do you think are some of the key historical pieces that have had the biggest impact on health disparity outcomes today? That's a great question. There are infinite number of examples. One of the examples that I will cite initially is the case regarding Elizabeth Key Grinstead, where in in or around 1655, 1656, she pursues her freedom. This is a Black mixed race. She's deemed mulatto, if you will, but she's a, a mixed Black white woman who was supposed to have been free from her indentureship, and she wasn't. And so she goes to court. She attempts to pursue her freedom, and there's all of these discussions that occur and several appearances in court that she makes. And so finally, she's granted her freedom. But roughly six, seven years later, there's a law that's created, and this is in the colony of Virginia. This is 1662. There's a law where they say, basically it reads, whereas some doubts have arisen whether children got by any Englishman upon a Negro woman should be slave or free, be it therefore enacted and declared by this present grand assembly that all children born in this country shall be held bond or free only according to the condition of the mother, and that if any Christian shall commit fornication with a Negro man or woman, he or she so offending shall pay double the fine. So these people are concerned about there being explicit evidence, if you will, through fornication or acts of rape, which is really what was rampant at the time. But They're more concerned with confining racial slavery to the woman's body, to the Black woman's body through this law, because they are concerned that the children that are being born out of tragic, you know, occurrences of rape and maybe some consensual relationships, that these children will have access to claiming kinship to their paternal or maternal parent who might be white. Right. This is substantial because there's dehumanization and degradation in this law. And this law represents one of the first 
of many laws to come that create circumstances. It positions Black women as not having dignity, not having humanity. And if you are now someone where you are in this predicament and at any time someone can rape you because they're not illegalizing (laughs) rape with this law. They're saying if you get caught having intercourse with a Black person that you'll be fined or there may be some other consequence. But one of the keys of it is that it can still happen. And there are no laws protecting Black women from being assaulted or aggressed in any way. And so this is one mainstay, if you will, or what I would say is a fixture or becomes a fixture in Black culture where dehumanizing Black people becomes one of the core variables in white American culture and it's backed up through white morality. So there's a lot that I'm, I'm trying to say here, but I think this has had a tremendous impact on Black people because as you mentioned, if you just move forward year by year or decade by decade, these laws are reinforced with other laws that subjugate and dehumanize Black people. And so any population of people that are having to deal with these types of circumstances mentally, emotionally, you know, as a physician, they begin to have physical ramifications. And so even in the ways that Black people have been dealt with regarding healthcare, education, in any arena, there's always been a collective all-out attack on the Black community within this culture. Well, you touch on many of the original laws and setting the framework for dehumanization and subjugation. I remember the raw emotion and power of that particular day's topic. But I want to highlight some of the historical facts that you pointed out, including the Kentucky 1802 Code, Virginia Code of 1819, 1823 Law, the Missouri 1825 Statute, Georgia versus State in 1859, where it was defined legally in the framework of our country that rape was not possible of a black man onto a black woman. And as you said, that the legal framework had established that a black woman's body was not rapeable. In 1850, concerning crime and punishment, that no black or Indian or Chinese could be allowed to give evidence in favor of or against a white man concerning potential rape of a black woman. So rape became justified because rape isn't possible on black women because their sexual intercourse, as you had also mentioned, was a definition of promiscuity, sort of this victim-blaming perception. And that rape became a vehicle for property creation. Yes. And many of the individuals who were authors of these laws or, or contributors, if you will, they considered themselves Christian. These were people of the faith who were supposed to be upright, good moral citizens of good character. And so they were, you know, they participated in designing these laws. As you pointed out, You've got those laws both by statute and by legal decisions, court decisions that extend and are very vivid through the 19th century into the 20th century, where through case law and by statute, 
it is being held over and over and over again that Black women cannot be raped. And in particularly in one decision, and this is the George V. State, this is the Supreme Court of Mississippi in 1859, they concluded that rape was only rape if it was committed upon the body of a white woman. One of the other things I want to point out is that in many of the statutes, white men were exempted, meaning there were no laws in some of the states that criminalized acts of rape committed by white men. And so this was not only legal, but it constituted the center and the core to a certain degree of what it meant to be white and moral, what it meant to be a moral citizen in America. I remember one of the most poignant notes I wrote during class that day, and I'll read it out loud here, was you said the laws and system had essentially legally supported systems of pedophilia and prostitution on the bodies and uteri of black girls and women. You talked about the effects on children. In 1848, decisions made where children born in prison would become property of the state, which you said perpetuated state-sanctioned rape, exploitation, and child trafficking. And I turn around today and I hear and I read articles about maternal mortality in the United States. There's a 300% increase mortality associated with giving birth to a child in this country if you are black or brown. And I can't help but think that the historical origins from 150 to 200 years ago are connected to what we are seeing today. They are, absolutely. I point to the 1680 law, an act preventing Negro insurrections that basically provided white people with the power to just claim that a black person, whether they were free or enslaved, that they had in some way presented a threat or lifted a hand to defend themselves against that white person. In that law, they said that black people could not defend themselves against white people, that if a white person suspected that a black person was somewhere that they shouldn't be, that they could report them and it would subject that person to beatings of 20 to 30 lashes, okay? That's 1680 during colonial times. Almost 200 years later, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, it rendered something similar, that any white person who suspected that a person was a runaway slave, they could report that person. And that person would be taken into custody and they had to appear in court and judges were paid $10 if they remanded them into enslavement and $5 if they somehow felt that the person had provided enough proof in order to be released. But in both of those instances, what is front and center and really significant is that the nature, the logic of the law in the way that they function and in terms of what they are considering. They consider and prioritize white suspicion and a hyper sensitivity and hyper scrutiny 
aimed at black people. And so if you fast forward to today and you look at what just occurred in the Ahmaud Arbery murder case that just happened, one of the defendants, he said that the reason that they pursued Ahmaud Arbery is because when they tried to stop him, to ask him where he was going, he did not stop. He wouldn't stop for them. And so they felt that because he didn't stop, that he was suspicious and he was guilty of something. They went on record saying that they didn't know why they thought he was guilty. They didn't see him do anything, but they felt that he was guilty, right? And they felt that they had the right to stop him. And one of the things that his mother said during that trial, and it gave me chills, she said that when they could not intimidate her son, they killed him. And so the nature of the programming of white supremacy and anti-Blackness, it remains with us today. And it's very present in medicine. And I appreciate the works of people like Harriet Washington, Dr. Catherine Bencole Medina, Dorothy Roberts, and the work that they've done highlighting infinite number of people and examples where these types of vile ideas were implemented in medicine and accepted through American academic institutions. There was a recent study, I think out in 2016, that demonstrated 50% of medical students and residents believed that Black patients felt less pain than white patients. And you think about the cruelties affiliated with chattel slavery and the degrees in which human beings were succumbing to the trauma and the pain of the inhumane labor, as you said, it can't help but reframe a complicit society's belief that maybe the people we are treating so poorly feel less pain, so it makes it okay. Absolutely. And I believe that Black people, African, African-American people, who were treated in these very disgusting, vile, inhumane manners, being tied to whipping posts, whether they just had given childbirth or if they were a nine-year-old girl or 15-year-old male, I believe that one could walk away, especially seeing these people go through such vile treatment and then surviving it, it could reinforce in someone's mind that, wow, these people are very strong, right? And some people are not giving in during that time to death. And so they're surviving it. Some people are doing the best that they can to just move forward and demonstrate the fortitude and the resilience and the courage that it takes to live through something like that, to live through such trauma. But you've got people like even Thomas Jefferson, and this is one of the things that Dr. Ibram Kendi points to in his book that in Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, he states it very clearly that Blacks feel less pain, but feel love more. So you've got prominent leaders of this country who are widely known and highly endorsed, if you will, and hailed highly, who espoused and reinforced these tropes. 
So it's not surprising to me that years later, those beliefs would be found in this culture. I want to quote Dr. Ashley McMullen, a fellow faculty member here at UCSF and co-host of the incredible podcast, The Human Doctor. I believe she recently stated, we are parts of systems and structures that allow some patients to receive empathy and others to receive the benefit of the doubt, while other patients are not offered that same humanity. One phase of anti-racism work seems to be the intentional centering of the humanity of others, extending and acknowledging the humanity of black and brown bodies, acknowledging the humanity and dignity of our LGBTQ patients and colleagues. And it starts to make sense that the psychopathy of whiteness has intentionally dehumanized black and brown bodies in order to justify the history and the definition of whiteness. Yes. And so there's a term that's used currently that I think minimizes the issue at hand, the term implicit bias. It's not just that there's bias. We all have bias. But what is missing from that term is that inherent within this culture is a favorable bias towards white people. And to other groups and communities that in this culture have been prioritized by the white community and by the white hierarchical and institutional structures that are among us. The other side to that is an unfavorable bias, which is deficit-based. That is a cloud that hangs over the heads of all African-Americans, of all Black people in this country especially those of us who are descendants of enslaved people and or we come from families who our parents, our grandparents lived through Jim Crow. And for other groups, it's more of an asset-based. And there are many studies that speak to this. Some of the ones that I point to are the legal memo study, which if you remember, I shared that they had split a group into two different control groups. And when they were told, when the participants were told that the memo was written by a white person, they scored the memo substantially higher. When they were told that it was written by a black person, they scored it lower. Not only did they score it lower, they had a lot of comments that were derogatory. The same with the Yale preschool study, where they told participants to look for bad behavior. And most of the time was spent, they used iScan technology to monitor where people were gearing their attention. And most of people's attention and time was spent with the educators looking for bad behavior in Black boys. That was also backed up by a study that was featured in the the New York Times back in 2018 that demonstrated that Black boys growing up in America raised in America's richest households were more likely to end up poor, lower middle class, or middle class. And over, I believe, almost 70% or a little bit over 70% of the cases. And so there is this stigma This very long-held stigma, it's an orientation of anti-Blackness that I define 
and describe and examine in my book that is still here with us. You talk about some of the privilege that comes out in these issues. I remember from our conversations in, in the classroom, one of the students, Tanvi Bakta, had mentioned that privilege isn't always the presence of perks and benefits. It is the absence of obstacles and barriers. Dr. Kamara P. Jones often talks about health inequity being either the lack or denial of access in the time of need. And I think about, you mentioned benefit of the doubt. How many times if we believe in a certain construct for a patient, they are given the benefit of the doubt, but if the patient fits a different monolithic construct than we, our own programming, and as some would say, implicit bias, leads us to not give them the benefit of the doubt. And I see when we look at the use of race in many of the race-based calculators, which actually will, because of race, deny a patient access to intervention or potentially over-intervene when they aren't allowed a more natural outcome, for example, in the vaginal birth after C-section calculator. Yes. And it's interesting because as you were saying that one of the examples that I use came to mind for me, and it has to do with this older white male who was featured in BBC. This was maybe a few years ago now. And he was not that he was bragging, but he says, I became an educator. I was a teacher for 17 years and I didn't know how to read or write. And he expresses all throughout the article that he was given the benefit of the doubt. Teachers passed him knowing that he couldn't read or write, but they would encourage him and they would tell him that he would be okay. And that type of mediocrity, insufficiency is not accessible or available for Black people. And we are expected to be 10 times as better. You know, we've got to be 10 times more respectful, 10 times more prepared. We've got to be non-threatening. We've got to do everything that we can to hope that someone does not see us or perceive us as being less than in a way where it will compromise the type of care and treatment we will receive at any moment. I had a situation last year, August of last year, where my father had an accident and had to be rushed to the hospital. And he spent the night in the hospital. He was highly medicated and was not coherent. And the hospitals said that they were going to release him, that he was going to come home with me. I was in an Uber on my way to the hospital and told them that I was a few minutes away if they could just wait. When I arrived at the hospital, roughly five minutes later, I found my father, a 75-year-old man, sitting in a chair with his shirt unbuttoned, totally out of it. I was so angry. And all I could do was cry in that moment. And what I know, what I feel in my heart, and I would be willing to bet everything that I own on this, that if my father had been a 75-year-old white woman or white man, 
that would not have happened the way that it did. Your story broke my heart the first time I heard it, and it still breaks my heart now. And sadly, it's not the first time I've heard of a similar situation from a colleague of mine. I think at the root of it, as you talk about, is an absence of empathy. There's this never giving the benefit of the doubt to the human being sitting across the wheelchair or the table or the clinic visit from you. Part of my practice that is evolving, and again, I'm so appreciative of your insight and education and teachings to help me become a better physician, is to really appreciate the history and the trauma, the intergenerational trauma that patients and their communities are bringing to the relationship that we have as doctors and patients. And I think we fail our patients if we don't acknowledge that there is some degree of bias and anti-blackness rooted in that relationship even before we meet. Yes. And also understanding, I would extend that to say, it also has to extend to an understanding that Black people are going through insurmountable, unending, unrelenting circumstances of disenfranchisement in many of the cases, especially in the public health setting. And even me, you know, someone that would be considered as someone that is middle class, if you will. But I say this because I, I think about the young girl, Marion Scott, who her mom did her hair a certain way, and she was excluded from her school picture. And she was eight years old, right? 11-year-old Faith Finity, who was suspended from school because of her hairstyle. Her mom decided to braid her hair, and the school decided they wanted to change the hair policy. She was suspended for three days. You know, the 14-year-old girl that was at the pool party, Dejeria Becton, who the cop felt like she had an attitude, and he began to slam her, body slam her, drag her, throw her around. How do we not consider the effects of what people have to go through? And I don't expect, you know, physicians in the healthcare setting to be therapists, but there has to be a degree of understanding that there is so much happening with any given Black person at any given time. But not only that, our consumption of what we are faced with within our community and how much we see it, how much it affects all of us as a community when we see it, and the ways in which our bodies are responding to that, the ways in which we sometimes are responding to life circumstances that we are faced with that we may not even be aware of, and it informs our attitudes, our response mechanisms. And so, you know, this whole idea that Black people show up sometimes and they're defensive or angry or difficult. If that is true, or if someone is sensing that, they need to know that there's good reason for it. And there needs to be empathy and understanding. It's an entirely different existence, especially from that of white people. And I think what is very interesting in the sessions that I teach is that once white people go through it, they come out on the other side with a full understanding of that. Because even something, you take the law, for instance, right? White people have a different relationship with the law than Black people do, because it was developed in their favor to protect them and to subjugate other people, non-white people, right? 
And if you follow the trajectory of the law through, you can understand the relationship that is building or being developed, if you will, with the white community and with non-white communities. Look at what laws are being enforced through law enforcement bodies. That's all you have to do. And so that breeds a different experience, a different context, a different psychology, a different existence in this culture and in this country. And we have to understand the anti-Black orientation. We have to come to terms and admit and deal with all of the things that have been done to Black people economically, through all of America's institutions, legally, educationally, and how our leaders facilitated these acts of violence, these acts of structural violence against Black people in other marginalized communities. A lot of our listeners are still in training or about to enter their own practices and develop into full human physicians. If you had any advice to give them, might I ask what that would be? Yes, I would say re-educate yourselves. I have a book list on my website, which is free. People can go and get it. It has a list of a combination of books, documentaries, and that's a good resource. There are many other resources out there. I would ask that people please read my book. It's going to give a very raw, unfiltered, uncensored perspective about many of the things that I shared here today. And also, if people are able to take one of the courses that I teach, they can go to my website and sign up for either the 12-week series of the Understanding the Roots of Racism, Anti-Blackness and its Links to Whiteness, White Racism, Privilege and Power, or they can sign up for a two-day course that I'm currently teaching through UCSF, which is a part of their Continuing Medical Education program. And it does provide CME credit, but you know whether it's any one of those three options that I've presented or people access other resources. It is a process of continual re-education, and it's a lifelong commitment. I couldn't agree with you more. The more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. Dante King, I want to thank you for your time and for your willingness to share. Uh, I want to personally thank you for the huge impact you've had on my practice and allowing me to refocus and recenter on my patients. If you're interested to check out Dante's book, please visit DanteKing.com. You can find more information there. And don't forget to tune in to more Backtable podcast episodes and to hear our continuing conversations on the topic of health equity. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Zubi Syed, Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. 
Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.